Hi, this is Jason Stein, and welcome to the Wellness Renegade podcast. We explore the crossroads of wellness entrepreneurs like you and me who are committed to making money while living healthier lives. People are going up against big pharma, insurance conglomerates, and the mainstream medical world. We'll be journeying into the challenges and the breakthroughs it takes to own your own business, pave the path through mainstream medical care, and truly become a wellness renegade. Today, our guest is Dr. Hicks. He's the founder of the Synaptic Integrative Care and Training Institute in Portland, Oregon, offering ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and psychedelic therapy training. He's the medical director of the Silo Wellness, offering psilocybin and ketamine retreats in Jamaica and Oregon. He's also the host of the Integrative Psychiatry Review Podcast, Welcome, Dr. Hicks. Uh, Matthew, I asked you earlier what you uh, want to be called. And so I am so excited about this conversation, specifically the psilocybin therapy, because it's one that is really coming fast and furious. Uh, we both live in the state of Oregon where the laws just changed on uh, psilocybin coming in. Is it 2022? Yes, that's the plan. And, and thank you for, for having me. It's, uh, I always appreciate uh, being asked to, to speak and share uh, the knowledge I've acquired on this you know, fascinating subject. And, and yeah, we just passed in Oregon uh, these, well, we passed two bills. One to decriminalize um, all, all substances uh, of any kind. And really that, that bill, Measure 110, was focused um, largely on addiction treatment. And so it's, it's not just a de decriminalization bill, it also funds um, and, and diverts people to uh, addiction treatment centers and, and screening. And it doesn't, it, you still would get a, 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 I think it's a class C misdemeanor if you're, if you're caught possessing these substances, it's like a hundred dollar ticket. You might have to go before a judge and they'll determine, okay, you're an addiction, you need to go to this treatment facility or treatment program rather than just putting people through the criminal justice system. Mm. Um, so so that's, that was uh, pioneering in and of itself. And then we passed measure 109, which creates psilocybin service centers where people have to get, um, they have to go through a certain treatment or where they're supervised under someone who's in a licensed facility and a with a licensed facilitator. And there's a two-year development period for, for that program. And so currently we're, we're a little bit in limbo right now because the governor has um, accepted uh, applications for, for the board uh, that will come up with all the administrative rules around how that program is going to look and what the training requirements are going to be for facilitators and, as well as the mushroom growers and, um, and, and whatnot. So... That's what the two-year development period is is all about. It'll, so it'll be actually twenty early twenty twenty three will be the, the okay. soonest we'll possibly have uh, the first licenses issued and and then participants will be able to uh, actually engage in that therapy. So for the the listeners, let's break it down a little bit more. So because there's so many fast moving parts and so many different people that are involved at the governmental level, at the city level, at the at the physician level, and my curiosity is, uh, will it be like medical marijuana in different states in the beginning where you have to get a license and then you'll be able to legally use psilocybin? Is that what uh, the direction is going? Or is anyone allowed to carry it and use it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's very different uh, in many ways from, from the cannabis regulations. Uh, no, no one has to have any sort of diagnosis or get approved for the treatment. It, it, so it's incumbent on the facilitators to screen uh, people for the appropriateness of engaging in the treatment. There are some contraindications to doing this work, no, namely if people have um, you know, uncontrolled um, cardiovascular risks to it, like hypertension or a history of heart attacks and whatnot, because these substances do increase um, blood pressure and whatnot. So there's some risk there as well as um, mental health risk if people have any experience of 
psychosis or vulnerable to psychosis, perhaps they have a family history of schizophrenia or whatnot, um, can also trigger manic episodes if people um, are bipolar and, and whatnot. So, so it's not without risk. And that, that's kind of a concern uh, for this, this measure too, is how well-trained these facilitators are gonna be. It's specifically said in the bill mm-hmm. that facilitators cannot be required to have more than a high school diploma to become facilitators, which means it's not going to be just doctors and therapists with graduate degrees and licenses. Um, it, it really, anyone can, can do the training and potentially offer this. And so like, what, what's their level of skill in recognizing these things? And yeah, uh, that makes me nervous. For that, whom it's not appropriate, right? Yeah, it makes me nervous because there's so many baristas in Oregon, like I've just decided to become a psilocybin psychotherapist at this point. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, because I have this this training program that I'm I'm developing too. I've had people come to me saying, "Hey, I want to be a facilitator," and uh, you know, the first question I ask them, like, "Okay, what's your experience in working with people?" Or like, "What what's your professional background?" And I've had people who are um, have no experience whatsoever in in mental health you know mm. software engineer was one of them who was like okay are you like a yoga teacher or <laughs> a coach of any kind like do you have yeah. any experience in like sitting down and talking to another human being kind of heart to heart and and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't um you know everyone thinks they're they're an expert in psychology uh because you know they they took one class in high school or college or something or you know well being an expert in psychology is totally different than dealing with hallucinogenics and the general population and so i'm really fascinated because my first experience with um psilocybin mushrooms uh i went to arizona state i remember around 1991 1992 Someone made a tea and was like, this is magic mushrooms. We drank it. I remember going to hear uh, a woman, Allie Stewart was a part of a band called Wise Monkey Orchestra. And uh, they were a big band, sang songs like Mustang Sally. And I literally had an alternate experience. It was just like mm-hmm. a lot going on. And probably 20 years later, someone told me about microdosing mm-hmm. and uh, they gave me some mushrooms and uh, I don't recommend this, but I eyeballed what I thought 0.05 milligrams was. And <laughs> so every day I would take some lion's mane and what I thought was 0.05 milligrams. And I was having altered experiences again. And I was like, this isn't right. So I got a micro scale from Amazon and I probably had a double dose. I was like, I was way off on my eyeballing. So yeah. if you're going to get in, I, I like what you're saying. Like there are professionals that are going to be trained to walk you through this rather than just DIY it. Right. Now, what's your experience? Because you lead journeys and you take people kind of on. Walk me through one of your retreats. What does it look like? Yeah, so... I guess the first thing is to distinguish uh, between microdosing, what that is, and full dose experiences. And, and certainly, um, especially when it comes to mushrooms, I'll say a few things on that first, because uh, mushrooms vary pretty widely in their potency to begin with. So, you know, four grams of mushrooms is not the same as another four grams of mushrooms, right? Some can be really strong. I say four grams. That's sort of like the baseline for a, a, a deep, full, full dose psychedelic experience. Uh, for for most people, some are more sensitive, and two grams will get them there. But um, yeah, and, and and when it comes to microdosing, as you pointed out, you know it's really hard to measure, and it, I mean, and to get to a microdose, even like you can't really, unless you have a really expensive scale, even even with even with that, trying to get a microdose measurement is, is really difficult. Are you telling me that my $30 micro scale from Amazon <laughs> might be off? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, yes, exactly. You know, and there's, there seems, and I, I've done this, like I've gone and looked for a scale and the difference between getting like a scientifically a- accurate scale, there's a huge gap, right? It's, it's $30 like the one you bought. And then to get to a, a higher quality, you're talking several hundred. 
Wow. Uh, if, if not a thousand dollars to get like a real legitimate piece of lab equipment, you know? Um, and so there, there's that. And, you know, when it, and it's also like a matter of what you're getting, who you're getting it from. Are you growing your, yourself? Uh, maybe you're less experienced versus an, a more experienced grower, or if you're using LSD, um, which is common, commonly used for microdosing, especially, uh, you know, it's, it's usually this tiny, tiny bit of liquid dissolved on a blotter paper. But, uh, you know, does it cover the whole blotter paper if you're cutting that up into smaller bits to microdose? Like, does that have as much LSD as that other tiny little piece of paper? It's, it's difficult to know uh, exactly what you're doing. I appreciate um, what and, and that you can't really measure either. Even if someone gives it into your liquid, it's, it's really difficult because LSD is so concentrated. You know, you're talking microgram or uh, yeah, micrograms instead of milligrams. Right. So let's um, stick with the psilocybin for a second. Because um, I, I, I'm a little concerned now that I'm talking to you that everyone's just going to try it out on their own rather than go through a channel. And well, they're doing that anyway. <laughs> what, well, tell, talk to me a little bit. What are, what are some of the side effects that people should really be aware of? Yeah, so side effects, I'll take that to mean sort of negative side effects, uh, which are, they, it can increase anxiety is, is the... It's sort of the most common uh, adverse event from, from microdosing. Um, well, from macrodosing for that matter too, if you're talking about sort of a bad trip. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly there's the, the dosing effect of, whoops, I took more than a microdose and now I'm having, uh, I'm a little trippy and I'm supposed to be like working or in, talking to someone and I just can't really be present because I'm a little bit uh, overdoing it. So that's certainly a risk. Um, there is, a, you know, there's still the blood pressure risk. There's some concern around uh, long-term use as well with, with microdosing, because that's how people are doing it is, is repeated um, doses that it might cause, um, you know, heart problems if you're doing it long-term, if you're already at risk for it. It's a pretty mild uh, increase in, in blood pressure and, and, and whatnot. So if you have a healthy heart, it's not a big deal to to, to worry about, but uh, if if you do, it could it could potentially be a risk. We don't have the data to like really say much about that, so it's sort of a theoretical risk. Um, but it, it's it's one worth considering. Um, but yeah, you know, anxiety, a little bit of confusion, um, inability to to focus. Some of the things that it also helps with. I mean, people, if you if you're doing it well, you've got your your protocol and your your dose figured out. It can actually increase your ability to to focus and concentrate and be creative and, and feel well and happy. I was and, blown away. Yeah. I was blown away by my level of focus and my decreased anxiety because I can tend towards some anxiety just naturally. Yeah. Both my parents have had some extreme anxiety. And so I, I was really surprised um, by how focused I was and how, uh, uh, just grounded I became there was a, a sense of like everything's going to be okay and everything's interconnected anyways mm -hmm. I am curious because I you know I did my own research and just enough to be dangerous and like so I mixed it with uh, lion's mane cordyceps and niacin mm -hmm. so I used Paul Stamets stack yep. and and so can't tell the listeners why I did it other than someone that's a mycologist said, this is good. So can you explain why you would do that? Yeah. I mean, those other mushrooms you mentioned, uh, lion's mane, cordyceps, um, and, and uh, getting nice in the B, the B vitamin. Well, nice and right is a B vitamin. Um, so those, the, the B vitamin is nice and it is something that not everyone uh, totally agrees with. Uh, in there. And so you have some differing opinions on that. One of Paul Stamets reasons for doing it uh, that way is to, um, to discourage people taking too much because you will get a flush where your, your blood vessels, particularly in your skin, dilate and you turn red and you feel hot. Um, and so by putting that in there, you're, you're not doing too much. Like a natural um, alarm system. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you're, you're disincentivized from doing it. And it's a, you know, it's a vitamin. It's not necessarily uh, harmful unless you're doing too much and you actually can get uh, kind of uh, a rash that 
will last for a couple of days if you're repeatedly doing it too much. But aside from that, um, you know, B vitamins are, are good for you. But um, yeah, the, the other mushrooms are just good for general brain health. They both promote uh, BDNF, that's brain-derived neurotrophic factor that causes, um, you know, better neurulation of, of, your, of, your, of your brain cells, your neurons. Uh, so they're better protected and, and just functioning at a, a higher capacity. So uh, good, good stuff. They're anti-inflammatory as well, which is strongly linked with all sorts of, um, you know, pathologies, even, you know, just, uh, you know, headaches and um, general uh, confusion, bad mood, all those things. So we're, we're just sort of synergistically uh, throwing in these, these things together that seems to work really well for a lot of people. Now, do you think, I remember a time where uh, I started seeing CBD everywhere, like it mm -hmm. started and then it didn't stop. And like, I went to the market and there were CBD colas and I would go to a wine shop and they're like, we can add CBD drops into your wine. And it just started blooming everywhere. And mm -hmm. I don't really think that's the healthiest way to handle it. But I wonder, is that what we're going to see with, C with psilocybin? Will it be like, psilocybin chocolate and psilocybin tincture and psilocybin cola. Yeah. Well, you know, it's sort of, um, it's sort of is going to, it's going to be different in some way. How, how it's going to be different remains to be seen, but it largely has to do with the, the laws that we're, we're passing. Like right now with this law in Oregon, uh, you know, for the, for the service center bill, what 109, it, there's, there's not really capacity for, for microdosing in, in that bill because you have to, it was built to do psilocybin therapy, an immersive therapy, doing it at a full dose supervised, um, which when you're microdosing, you don't really need supervision. Uh, it'd be a long, boring day probably um, to, to do it that way. So how, how you would do it in that sense, don't know. Um, and then the other bill, the decriminalization bill, which there are there de decriminalization bills popping up all over the country right now, which is really encouraging. Uh, you know, California, Vermont, um, number of others, many cities, are, you know, have done it. Oakland, Santa Cruz, uh, Denver have already have de decriminalization bills in their city. But that, you know, it's a little bit different because decriminalization is not the same as uh, legitimate um, uh, recreationalization right yeah. it's you know there's not a taxation process in some cases there there's still um you know misdemeanor things like distribution is not necessarily legal at all so comp companies popping up or advertising for it is is not legal they could still be cracked down and of course uh, as is still the case with you know cannabis there's still federal um you know, regulation is still a schedule one substance. And, and that know, still happens in certain states. People are still being arrested for cannabis. So yeah. this is really an interesting conversation because uh, it just sounds like there's going to be a lot more visibility coming to the market. But is there any lobbying to uh, decriminalize it? And in Denver, didn't it get decriminalized? Uh, mm -hmm. Or isn't it recreational now in Denver or no? Psilocybin itself? Yeah, it's, it's decriminalized uh, in, in the sense that the, the city police are, are not going to, um, you know, arrest anyone. And it's, you know, it's up to a certain amount, I believe. Uh, I'm not totally uh, familiar with the, the particulars in, in Denver, uh, but up to a certain amount, it's legal to possess it for personal use. Now, if you have a, a, a whole lot of it and you're distributing and in fact someone did get a, arrested there there was uh someone who got a little i don't know his name i think he had a, a podcast and and whatnot he was distributing and advertising pretty openly and and somebody did come come and get him for that yeah so, so they shut they shut him down and let's talk about that a little bit because this podcast is really about the renegade and and so um how are you taking people on journeys like is that uh, legit? Is that part of your business structure? Are you doing it outside the U.S.? What's happening there? Yeah, and I, I wanted to get back to your earlier question as well about the, the retreats. Um, so there's sort of two, two ways that I'm, I'm doing that is uh, I have my, my clinic in Portland, Oregon, 
where I am doing uh, ketamine because ketamine is legal. It's been around since the 60s as an anesthetic, uh, but it also has a certain dose range is psychedelic. And so we're, we're doing that. It's different than psilocybin um, and, and other psychedelics it has a different mechanism of action and how it works and generates the, the psychedelic experience. But nonetheless, it is very psychedelic and it fits many of the, the models uh, that are being used for, for therapy, for psychedelic therapy. So uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing that. I have a, uh, a business partner who's also my, my partner partner. Mm-hmm. Um, do, she's a, a, a psychotherapist. And so mm-hmm. we work together uh, in that. And basically I, I kind of medically supervise, but I also do the integration training. I, I have studied many um, counseling and therapy techniques and, and do that myself as well. Um, but, but she, she takes some of the clients in some cases we work together. Um, but that's, we're doing that both in person on a limited basis due to COVID, but, uh, and then we do it through telehealth as well, uh, with people in, in the state of Oregon. Um, and then we've also kind of got recruited more or less by silo wellness, um, through, to do these retreats. And so we're doing ketamine retreats, uh, here in Oregon that are five-day retreats. Uh, There is a need to diagnose uh, people for, you know, indications for to do the therapy here because it is a medical treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an off-label one Mm -hmm. technically, but there's, you know, there's uh, literature, evidence, published peer-reviewed literature demonstrating its, you know, safety and efficacy. So it's justifiable uh, to do it, even though the FDA hasn't technically said yes, ketamine for depression or trauma or whatever. Um, but uh, so we're, we're able to do that. And those retreats look a little bit different than the psilocybin retreats in Jamaica. And I'll get to that in a second. But um, the, the ketamine retreats here in Oregon are, like I said, five days. We do them out in uh, really beautiful, natural settings um, so that people are, they're having time to connect with nature, go on hikes, uh, rafting trips, uh, hot springs, as well as just like be outside sitting with the trees that sort of thing um and we you know start most days with meditations uh we do group uh integration sessions and we offer them uh individual one-on-ones they either work with me or tall um that's uh, my partner mm-hmm. and uh and we do kind of one-on-one integration therapy so let's type. let's talk about this a little bit because i I'm, I'm fascinated but i'm also i'm curious and mm-hmm. like if you drive down like a, a, a poorer neighborhood, they're, they're going to have a quickie mart with a sign outside that says we have ketamine. And like, what, what is, what are they selling? Well, I've never seen that um, because I mean, there is street ketamine, um, you know, illicitly, you know, acquired or produced. And for the um, listeners, does it go by other names so we can kind of educate? Yeah, yeah. The, the street version is often called Special K or okay. Vitamin K sometimes, okay. which is a misnomer because there actually is a Vitamin K. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I'm using you know prescription pharmaceutical grade ketamine, uh, which is a controlled substance, substance uh, Schedule Three which means you have to have um, a medical license. Yeah, you to, have to have a DEA license. A DEA you you license. pay a lot for that every year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, there's requirements for storage and documenting and, and stuff like that. So um, nothing illegitimate about the way we're doing it. Uh, but yeah, there, it's it can be used illicitly too. And unlike some other psychedelics, there is an a, a abuse potential uh, with ketamine um and that that being that you can you can continue to take it um and continue to get high from it kind of on end right uh, in fact the way the way we're uh it's used as an anesthetic is is way higher dose than what we're doing it at uh at a high enough dose it just knocks you out right which is how it's useful and to do surgery or whatnot but at a lower dose um you know you're not totally gone uh you're just having a psychedelic experience but you can keep doing it uh, versus the serotonergic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, at a certain point, your the your serotonin receptors say we're done for the day. Yeah, <laughs> and you can't keep taking it uh, until until you know you give it a, a few days to kind of recover, and then you can do it again uh, theoretically, which I don't necessarily recommend, but it's possible. So Matthew, uh, why is it why is it that like 
Zoloft and, and all these pharmaceutical companies for, for depression, Wellbutrin, they're just hand over fist uh, making money and getting a lot of people on these that have a lot of side effects. But when it comes to psychedelic medicine, why do you think it's been so hard to move it forward? Because they're not patentable. They, uh, most of them come from, from nature or were discovered so long ago that the patents expired. And so yeah. um, they can't patent them. And that's the entire business model of the industry is creating novel molecules and patenting them. And then, it, then there's a the control uh, issue where um, they're able to you know, profit from, from the patents. Got and it. That's, so why like, they're, that's, that's how the pharmaceutical industry does. They pour tons of money into development and research. Right. Um, and then they get paid back by charging you know, ridiculous prices uh, for, for those medications until the patent runs out. And then and the, the case in point is what they're doing with Spravato, right? Ketamine was developed in 1962. Mm -hmm. um, it was patented for a while and the patent ran out. And that's why it wasn't really developed much as a, you know, psychedelic or psychiatric. Because it wasn't profitable. It was, it was no longer profitable. And so there was no reason to, to uh, fund the research to convince the FDA that they should approve it for this, this indication. Even and if so, it has lower side effects and it's completely a, a better choice medically, it doesn't move forward because the profit margins aren't there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's, that's how the, yeah, the medical industry, you know, works is it has, has to be profitable. It's not necessarily what's best for, for people. The, the way psychedelics have moved forward is through organizations like MAPS, Beckley Foundation, USONA, which have uh, private donors who yeah. just are believers in the medicine and they, they gather the funds, they do the studies, um, but they, you know, they have limited resources. So they're, they're only funding certain studies for certain indications and, they're really doing it strategically in a way that I, I can stand behind. And that's to do kind of the least controversial drugs or the ones we know most about at least for sort of the biggest uh, afflictions uh, that are most common to people that are gathering the most attention, you know, like PTSD uh, for veterans with MDMA and whatnot and depression, uh, you know, psilocybin. And so, so that makes sense to me. And hopefully we'll get to a point where uh, the federal government will not only approve those treatments, but they'll start funding more research. We, we spend, you know, millions and millions of dollars every year. The federal government spends millions of dollars on developing treatments that, you know, private industry won't for that exact reason, you know, because they don't necessarily have an incentive. Companies don't have an incentive to, to develop them. Um, and so the government funds it. But they So Matthew, let's go yet. back to MAPS so the listener knows what, what you just said. What is MAPS? Yeah, MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Mm, and, and they have a website. Do you know what that is just off the top of your head? I'm sorry, what, what is? Uh, the MAPS website for people that want to check it yeah, out. Yeah, it's just maps.org. Great. MAPS.org. Okay. Um, yeah, it was started by Rick Doblin in the, in the 80s. And he had sort of a, a group of people to, to help his, he was really big into MDMA. So it, it was um, started right after MDMA became illegal, which um, was in the, was in the eighties. Um, and they sort of just started uh, kind of right where things left off. Like, Hey, let's, let's do this in a legitimate way. After sort of the, sort of the chaos of the sixties and, and early seventies, when everything became illegal and we saw the war on drugs, right. Uh, MDMA kind of came a little bit later than that, that first wave. And so it was sort of enjoyed this um, kind of gray area for a while where a lot of therapists were using it uh, anyway. And, but then it, it became a party drug and that's, yeah. that's where it got regulators attention and they made it illegal despite lack of uh, evidence for its, you know, significant harm. And that's and what it seems to happen, right? Benefit. Like, here's benefits, but it's not profitable for us. So we're going to shut it down. And so before we get to Jamaica, I, I have a question. Do you believe that the active ingredient in psilocybin will try to become like cannabis? They tried to do it with Marinol, the mm. pill that has THC like s synthesized in it. But I don't think 
the Marinol drug is being prescribed, like all the dispensaries are opening up, right? And so yeah. do you believe there'll be a, a patented form of psilocybin? Uh, maybe, well, it'll, some, some variation of, of the molecule is very possible. And there are, there are lots of companies who are working on novel molecules, okay. right? Um, on this, or, you know, derivative products and, and whatnot that will be pat patentable. And so there, there is a rush um, of investors uh, and companies and pharmaceutical companies that are working on that. Um, in, in the traditional um, industry, industry traditional way of, of getting a patent to come up with something that's slightly better uh, or I guess more controllable than nature <laughs> made it uh, for us. So that, that's happening and you know, there's speculations in, on both sides of the table. Uh, personally, I think it'll probably lead to a bust in, in many ways. Uh, you know, right now, psychedelics are this big, sexy thing, um, just like cannabis was. And, right. and anything can, can be that, right? And so you have people flooding money into it and, and the vultures will kind of like, you know, sell quickly after they make a short profit. And then the market will find some we'll ground at some point. Um, and uh, it'll, it'll, it'll all even out in the long run that, you know, and that's part of the reason why I am, am working with silo, uh, you know, because they, they recognize that that's probably the case. And so their business model is really to offer uh, retreats, you know, which is, is not a novel idea. There's, I mean, I've talked to a million people who like want to have a psychedelic retreat and I hope they do, and and they you know find different ways to do it, and off, have all sorts of offerings. But um, so Jamaica, I don't think the novel Jamaica, I mean, maybe we'll come up with something better, something with fewer side effects, whatever. You know, I'm all for for research and finding, uh, you know, new and better ways to do things. But um, and let's talk about at Jamaica. the end of the day, we have these molecules that work already. They, they're amazing. And yeah. why not use what we have? Why not use what nature has provided well, us? I'm in agreement. And this is what I'm curious about. So Jamaica doesn't have any laws where you can just go over and you can take people on journeys. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. So, so the basic story in, in Jamaica is that um, they sent a delegation to uh, a UN comp or it wasn't necessarily UN, uh, but they, they, there was these international conferences where the U.S. led by the U.S. and our our efforts on the war on drugs to say, like, hey, we want to we want to get the rest of the world to agree with us on policy. So they yeah. they had this international conference. Uh, you know, a lot of these countries sent delegates to it, and they signed on to this treaty that said they were going to make you know these substances illegal. Jamaica sent delegates, but they ran out of money before the end of the conference, so they they had to go home, and they never signed the agreement. So <laughs> okay, um, the, the basically in in Jamaica, these substances are not illegal they haven't they don't specific they're not specifically protected or or approved but they're not illegal there uh, although cannabis is um, as a as a religious uh, sacrament for the rastafarians mm -hmm. but um, other other substances are just enjoying the the gray area and, and are so, there other countries like that uh probably probably I'm, I'm sure there is you know in, in particularly in, in developing countries that just don't have the resources to crack down on people uh you know around these things i mean um of course there's a lot of places in you know central and, and south america that have long traditions and, oh uh, ayahuasca they, there's lots yeah, of sacred, sacred entheogens and, and whatnot and so they're, they're certainly legal there which is not to say they don't have some laws in some countries regulating who can do what when and where and so um, walk me through like you it, it for lack of finesse it's like you're taking uh psilocybin journeys to jamaica like really how many days do people go for yeah well, there are, you know, there's a handful of, of companies and, and retreat centers that are offering these in, in Jamaica. I'm not really familiar with all the competition. I just, I just know uh, what we're doing with Silo and, and we're only just getting started. So we'll have other ways of, of doing it and other retreats that we're developing and, and whatnot. But um, the way this, this one went uh, that I just got back from a few days ago uh, was a five-day retreat. I guess it was it was four days for the participants, but um, 
we we did five journey or excuse me we did three uh psilocybin sessions which i was a little skeptical of going into it because i think that that's too much to fit into short of uh, a window i, I didn't think people well, would that's be a tripping. full dose three out of the four days yeah that's a yeah. lot yeah and in you know my suspicions were were accurate that uh by by the the second and, and third journeys, people were having very light or almost no psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. You know, e- even when even when you're not like tripping, you're not getting visuals, you're not like leaving your body. Um, my experience is that you know, even if I've a microdose several days in a row, I can still notice like a heart opening, a clarity of thought uh, that that can that still happens, and there's there's still benefit you know to that potentially, but. Um, anyway, we, we worked with a, uh, a Rastafarian ceremony leader, uh, shaman, if you want to call him that, yeah. uh, there, who they had arranged to, to lead the retreat before I was invited, me and, me and Tal were invited. And so we, we kind of st- stuck with his programming and he, he hadn't done a retreat like this, uh, you know, a long retreat um, with, you know, multiple sessions before. So we were all kind of Sounds like a lot of experimentation was happening. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's fair to say. Uh, which is not to say we're not bringing a lot of experience to to the work, but doing it in a, a retreat sort of format. Um, yeah, we're still sort of figuring things out. Uh, you know, it's it's early stages for in so many ways in this whole industry. Um, but yeah, it, it was really wonderful. We this this retreat compared to like the the ketamine retreats in Oregon. Um, this one was a little more, um, let's say, loose, uh, loose in a way that we're not necessarily, it, it really, it's, it's about the people who are coming. Yeah. In Oregon, it's, we need a clinical indication. So we're, we're actually treating depression, we're treating anxiety, we're treating, you know. So every, every participant in Oregon has uh, a lot of shared things going on. And, and in Jamaica, it sounds like it was a little bit like the wild, wild west. Did you bring people from around the world or were they all from the U.S.? Uh, they mostly from the U.S., but we had some, some people from other places as well. Um, to, to finish my other point, too, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm a licensed physician in Oregon. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm treating people and, and uh, you know, Tal is a licensed therapist. So we're doing therapy with people and, right. and we need to, um, you know, and we screen people out if they don't meet indications. But in Jamaica, you know, it's, it's a non-regulated uh, environment there. And I'm not, you know, a licensed doctor in Jamaica, you know, right. so I can't diagnose or treat anything there. So I'm really, in that sense, just a facilitator. And I, I obviously I can't divorce my, uh, my, my clinical insights, uh, from what I'm doing there. So I, you know, I took some blood pressures and make, made sure people were safe and answered their questions about medications and, uh, and that sort of thing, which is just part of being responsible. And part of the reason I was there was to increase the, the safety and the, the comfort of the participants. And so th- there, was, there was usefulness in, in, in that, um, but it was a little bit more laid back. And the people who showed up, there, there were a few people who were just sort of there on vacation. <laughs> you know, I thought like, hey, mushroom sounds interesting. Oh, That's wow, interesting. That. And there were people there who are more on a personal growth journey. Right. Um, probably didn't have people who were there to, you know, fix their trauma or get over their depression. Although there were certainly issues that came up for people and, and we helped them navigate those. And, um, it's, not for no me. Completely... it's not for me. I, I would be a little, um, I think if I had trauma or I was going for a specific intention and I showed up and people were like, I just want to experience Disneyland. What's, what's this like? Um, it would have been a little like off-putting, I think, for me personally. I am curious yeah. though, because I understand because it's a foreign country and you weren't leading it. Um, is your plan to start introducing other substances into your clinical model here in the state of Oregon? Uh, well, you know, I plan to follow the law in Oregon. Uh, here. Well, I'm following the law in Jamaica too. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's... Um, there are other opportunities to do other substances in Jamaica. Uh-huh. You know, so there's consideration of, of that uh, happening there. Um, but yeah, I will be offering psilocybin when that becomes legal uh, in Oregon as well. 
And um, for your own training and education, I'm guessing a lot of the original founders, like I think Paul Stamets, he just started studying fungi and mushrooms and kind of drilled his own pathway. Now in a new generation, are there psilocybin conferences? Are there medical educators learning from other medical educators? What's happening in that world? Yeah. Yeah, there are, there's a lot of conferences. Um, that was sort of my, my starting point. Uh, well, where I got into it, you know, I was in uh, naturopathic medical school um, wanting to really focus my career on mental health. That's what I always was interested in. And, you know, I was interested in meditation and using herbal um, medicine and as well as, you know, medications when, when indicated and, and all, all the things, but with an integrative approach and really wanting to still find my niche in terms of like counseling techniques and, and all that. When uh, Erica Zelfand, who's another uh, naturopathic physician came and spoke um, at school at Grand Rounds lecture on the science of psychedelics. And she pointed to all these studies and this, and this was back in like 2016 or so. Uh, and it was news to me back then. And I was blown away by it because this was uh, fascinating. And I was, you know, I was a, just say no kid growing up. I never had experienced any of these substances. I was a good Christian boy growing up. So, um, uh, so I, you know, started reading books, reading articles, signed up for the first conference I could go to, which was a maps conference back in 2017 and, uh, started going to many other conferences. So yeah, there's lots of them. COVID has slowed them down or they've moved online, um, and whatnot. I eventually, um, did the California Institute of Integral Studies uh, certificate in psychedelic uh, therapy and research, which is sort of the gold standard uh, right now, and it has been for a while. And I was wanting to develop uh, a training program myself. Um, and so I, I have been working on that for, for quite a while, but I've been kind of slowed down by a number of factors. Um, but it, it's funny because I'm uh, finishing up that program now, the CPTR, uh, program. And I, since I started developing my program, like a ton of them have popped up all over the place. There's, yeah, I they're, they're good ones. Fluence, yeah. um, Polaris, uh, Psychedelic Support now offers it. I'm not even the only one in Oregon anymore, which yeah. was sort of my, uh, my, the, my fallback was like, well, we have this unique program in Oregon. We'll need Oregon uh, training. And, and, and so I, which is fine. You know, I, I think uh, it's it's really important to get educated. And, and in fact, uh, I was listening to Erica Zelfand again the other day because she was speaking at a conference and she pointed to this. Uh, there's, there was a study that takes about 17 years for uh, new information to reach mainstream uh, consciousness in, in the medical field. So a new study comes out that right. says, hey, we should do this instead of that, or this medication is better than that one. It takes like 17 years for that to become common knowledge among uh, medical professionals. That's just because we're so busy and there's right. so much information. It's impossible for us to stay up to date on everything. And, you know, when it comes to mental health, there has not been any significant breakthroughs in a long time. You know, uh, pharmaceutical companies have really stopped developing new psychiatric medications and treatments a long time ago because they just weren't finding profitable ways to do it. Right. Uh, and they had just run out of ideas. And uh, so psychedelics uh, coming up now, it's, it's really important, but there, there needs to be a lot of ed education, both for clinicians as well as the general public, um, because this isn't, I don't think this is um, something that only needs to be medicalized um, in, in a sense, it's very powerful in that way. And that we should have well-trained therapists and, and, and physicians and everyone in between who should be very knowledgeable in it. Um, but there's also, I think, a cultural maturity with these substances um, for, for spiritual communities, for seekers, for people just kind of coming of age should have, I think, uh, some relationship with these substances. I, I agree with you. I actually think that uh, there's a gap, though, in between those two things that are, you're, you're talking about. Like, I think about how many people in the U.S. have medical marijuana cards and they go and a bud tender who may not have much knowledge is recommending a strain and where was the strain grown and is it sativa or is it indica? And, and ultimately I think there needs to be 
higher quality go-to people. So I'm really grateful that you're studying and you're doing what you're doing because it sounds like the uh, hallucinogens or I don't even know the, the kind of uh, uh, name that you give ketamine, uh, psilocybin, like what category is that? But it sounds like that's your position in, in your own business and where your interest in furthering mental health and well-being is. And so I'm excited that you're out there. I really hope that the people who are listening to this, if you're in Oregon and you know someone really struggling with depression, that they look you up. And if, if uh, they want to find you, what's the best website to go to? Yeah, it would just be my clinic website, which is synaptic.care. And uh, I'm also, you know, my, um, my podcast is drmatthewhicks.com. And I have links uh, between the two as well. Great. Well, I just appreciate you coming on today and I feel a little bit more educated on where things are headed. And I'm just grateful that there are rogue people out there because there's a lot of naturopathic physicians that aren't touching this. They're like, nope, I'm going a different direction. And so I'm grateful that you and, and your partner are, are saying, how can we do this legally? How can we create a sustainable business? And how can we help people? And really, yeah, and that's it's, what it's... Wellness Renegades is all about. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not easy, uh, you know, like stepping up. I mean, especially a lot of people in private practice, especially alternative, uh, integrative medical providers, you know, there's not a lot of just jobs out there. We can't nope. just go on indeed.com and, right. and say, Oh, here's, here's a salaried position. You know, we often have to go create our own, you know, build our own clinics or, or, you know, contract with people in a way that's beneficial. We have to re recruit our own patients and, and find a way to make a living and set up prices in a way that's sustainable and do insurance or don't do insurance. And uh, it's really, really hard. And, uh, yeah. our, you know, we go to school to be healers, um, not to be business people, but we right. end up having to be both. Absolutely. And, and sometimes those lessons are, are learned the hard way. You know, even, even right, right before... Uh, we started recording. I was I was talking to Tal uh, about even negotiating our price, you know, our, our compensation with Silo and like, right. you know, how do we even compare it? Like, there's not, we can't just go online and look. Oh, this is the salaried position uh, for that because it doesn't exist. Right. Um, or, or or if it does, it's just not widely known enough uh, to to compare it directly. So we're we're sort of um, you know, setting, making it up as we you, go. You just, you just made a commercial of, uh, why I do what I do. Like yeah. there really needs to be more wellness business coaches, people that come from the background of integrative care and yeah. can help those that are coming up and through the ranks to do what they want to do, because you're right. The inspiration, the passion is only half of it. The other mm -hmm. half has to be solid business knowledge to know how to build your contract and definitely don't do things on a handshake and what are you getting paid for and are they paying for your flights meals like what else is included and it's a lot because sometimes you just want to read another study or you want to work more with patients and yeah. you're like I, I don't want to do this business side but but there aren't jobs no one's saying hey we'd like you to start a psychedelic center for mental health here's a lot of money yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, it's so it's it's tough, you know, and in particularly, you know, when it comes to psychedelics, it's, it's there's the relationship with um, what, what do you call it? the plant itself, the inner healing intelligence, uh, self energy, it's called it goes by a lot of names, but there's, there's this call to integrity and to purpose. And, you know, trying to put a price tag on, uh, on that and finding finding ways to do what's, what's true. Uh, for you is is can be challenging at, at times um, you know is the company I'm, I'm partnered with like what's their motivation do they have a relationship with the plants themselves you know these are there's a lot of questions to be asked and a lot of opportunity to check in and 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 remain um, true to your your virtues and your values and, um, and, and it's tough because we got to earn a living too. It's like, I would give it this all away just for the, for the satisfaction of, of helping other people. 
if I could, but you know, I still have to pay my rent every month. Right. The beautiful thing is that you're on the front end of a wave. And I think that it's really hard to be a pioneer because when you're a pioneer, you're the first one that gets knocked down. Yeah. But I also feel like you're going to be light years ahead um, in five years in uh, psychedelic medicine and mental health when other people are just getting started. So yeah. I, I really hear you. And, and that's why I do what I do, because I, I believe, as you said, there's venture capitalists that are funding left and right to try to monetize this and get ahead of it. And so there are ways to structure it where you and Tal ultimately are sustainable and you get paid every month and you get to continue to do the work, the work that you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it'll see if it, if it works out too. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I think, you know, down the road, it might just be such a mange, you know, 20, 30 years down the road, it might be so mainstream that, uh, you know, it'll just be a part of just normal mental health care. Um, or such a, an ingrained part of society where there's psilocybin churches and, uh, right. and spiritual communities where people don't need a, you know, a medical professional in every case, um, that we, we may not need specialists. In, 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 I mean, I think we will. In, in we always will. Cases. There'll always be a shaman. There'll always be a doctor in the village. Yeah. So there's always going to be that need. And what you're saying is, where is it going I don't know, but you're creating institutional knowledge for your and Tal's business that will always be valuable. And so mm-hmm. we can have an offline conversation if you want to chat more about the business side. But I just, I really appreciate there's people out there like you that are going up against the, you know, corporate conglomerates because you're, it's David versus Goliath right now. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm betting on you. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, it's a, you know, it's a calling and, and I've made sacrifices to position myself the way I am. Cause I, I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been hard, but I, I think it'll pay off and uh, I'm, I'm certainly enjoying the, enjoying the ride. Great. Well, I'm Jason Stein with the wellness renegade podcast. And we're here today uh, with Dr. Matthew Hicks. And one more time, just throw out one of the sites so people can learn more if they'd like to. Yeah. Dr. Matthew Great. You guys have a great day. Thank you.